understanding that persona, getting inside the buyer's head, understanding their reticence and start using this product that they were in love with to run their business really helped us pull out discovery, helped us show value, helped us train our reps and our SEs on how to demonstrate that value and ultimately helped pave the way up market. Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello there. You are listening to Revenue Insights. Today, I'm joined by Rusty von Bulberg. Rusty has helped scale teams at Salesforce, Square, Motive, and more recently founded Spokes Group. So welcome along, Rusty. Lovely to chat today. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks for having me today, Lee. No problem. Uh, excellent, excellent CV. Um, I'm really keen to dig into your experience and, and what you're doing more recently. Um, but for anyone that hasn't met you before, um, could you give a brief overview of your story and how you've got to where you are today? Sure. Uh, when I first got into technology, people told me that there's two things to do in tech. Either you're building it or selling it. And one of the things I discovered is there's actually a third leg to that stool. It's building the machine that grows the company. And that's the product that I've made a career out of building. So I got into this out of engineering where I discovered that the same skills that go into building a great product of discovery, testing, execution, go into building great companies. Found my way into strategy consulting. Uh, and from there, as we built a firm, we were invited further and further down that RevOps path from pricing and packaging into segmentation. And eventually somebody asked us to build them a CRM. Uh, I fell in love with Salesforce, spent six years there, going from about 200 reps in one product to thousands of reps in many products. I uh, was invited to be the first salesperson at Square and help grow that team uh, to more than 70 reps very quickly. And we, we delivered a lot of the growth of Square's IPO. One of the things that I got fascinated by was automation. So I went out and built a chatbot platform. Uh, before coming to Motive uh, and helping to scale that team from 70 million to 200. Now I've taken those skills and I'm applying it to help grow companies from seed to sea, uh, building their own go-to-market engines as uh, the spokes group. Amazing and uh, excellent summary. So let, let's touch on that a little bit then because your experience really is, and I was having a look into your LinkedIn before, you've kind of straddled between both operations and sales um, and obviously was a was a product background a product background as well so really nicely rounded on the whole so what learnings have you taken from that to really start to build go-to-market strategies today what what is your approach to it i really think about the go-to-market engine as a product that gets built for the company uh taking a um sort of a customer first view of this we can think about building a roadmap for the stage of company that you're at 
and what needs to be done. At some companies, it's all about building traction. You're early stage, you're focused on the persona, the pricing, and the cadence of building pipeline. As you mature, maybe into a series B, C company, you're thinking about how do I get more information about entitlements? How do I implement the CPQ? How do I get more customer health data and avoid churn? Uh, because that's where a lot of the um, traditional operational work of go-to-market comes to play and really helps boost the, the productivity of the team. So what would you say then, and, and, and I ask this because go-to-market strategy comes up quite quite a bit and it's obviously a key key part of the revenue operations role so how would you say your approach is is different to perhaps the uh, uh let's say traditional approach to go to market i um i think the place that i spend a lot of time is on the buyer persona because at the end of the day people buy from who they like and trust and they're out to solve a problem for their company. Uh, one of the places that we encountered this most starkly was as we built up Square. Square had a tremendous uh, PLG motion when we started the sales team. And one of the things that we discovered is big companies weren't buying Square. They were using Square for maybe a pop-up, but they weren't using Square in their day-to-day operations, where smaller companies we're really happy to adopt Square. And then there is a zone in between where um, I think we had some leading adopters or early adopters of Square for big companies. But when, um, when you're implementing a POS system, you want to understand the workflow of that new POS system in really deep detail. You want to understand how inventory is managed. And if you have a team of 12, 30, 50 people, you're not going to take an experiment and potentially disrupt your entire business. You want to talk to an expert, uh, understand what it's going to have happen, build a change management process, uh, and then implement Square in a, um, in a methodical way. So long-winded way of answering your question of, Understanding that persona, getting inside the buyer's head, understanding their reticence to um, start using this product that they were in love with to run their business really helped us uh, pull out discovery, helped us show value, helped us train our reps and our SEs on how to demonstrate that value and ultimately helped pave the way up market. Really important point, and what stands out to me then is, and 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 feel free to to draw on any one of your experiences. What what's your process then to first identify that buyer persona, but then also to build out what it looks like, and then uh, if you can, ideally, how you then build that into the rest of the go to market function. I think listening is the first thing because buyers will tell you. And they'll tell you in a lot of different ways on discovery calls. Um, one thing that I'm, I'm continuously evangelizing to my teams is the value of reading financial statements, like your 10K, your customers' 10Ks and 10Qs. Uh, the executive team actually puts in writing what are their most important initiatives and what are the risks of their business. 
And if you can line up your product and service to what's most important to your buyer, you have a better chance of helping them at the end of the day. Then it's reinforcing that, documenting the personas, documenting the handoffs between your teams. So what does what are the objective criteria that an SDR needs to achieve in an opportunity for NAE to accept it? Um, and having that handoff negotiated in an objective way really helps speed the sales cycle because you're, you're communicating, here's what's important to my buyer. Here's the next step they want to see. This is what's really important in the demo. Uh, and then it carries through the sales process where you're, you're reinforcing how you're going to address pain points all the way through. And are you, are you building that from your perspective into, you know, top end of the funnel into, you know, business development and through marketing, or do you see it uh, spreading throughout the customer journey? It's throughout the customer journey. I think one of the most important things is to create that feedback loop because as companies grow, uh, you get to the point where there's separate teams for product marketing, for marketing, for sales development. And one of the things that happens at the founding stage is founder-led sales. All those things, all those roles are the same people. So the feedback loop is really tight between what you're learning about buyer personas and how you're marketing your product. Um, as these grow and, and um, specialize, it's really important to maintain that feedback loop and bring the feedback from your sales development team to product marketing. Of I don't think this pitch or my buyers are really curious about this other element that we're not talking about. How do I talk about that with them and get some PMM help on it? Or uh, bring back and one of the things that we do at the spokes group is we actually build ROI selling tools, which take a um, the business demo of how do you build a business case for a product or service and turn it into a structured conversation where you're capturing the customer's information and their data helps you build a business case uh, throughout the the sales cycle. So. Um, it helps set up the success criteria for a POC or a trial and then puts you in a great position to negotiate price at the end of the deal. Is that, um, I, I think that's a really interesting point that I'd love to dig more into because, you know, being able to capture that data and, and be able to demonstrate the potential ROI, it makes it a no brainer, right? Um, so what does that process look like? Is, is that, um, what does that process look like for you in terms of is that how you're working with customers or how you 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 prove to customers the ROI? Yeah, this is um, this is a service that the spokes group does for customers today, and mm-hmm. let me tell you about how we build it and then how it gets used. Yeah. So what we do um, is very similar to product marketing work. We go out, we talk to ten of your customers or prospects. And we listen to the pain that they're looking to address with your product. We do a ton of market research so that we're, we're able to build logical structures with inputs and outputs of how your, the, your product delivers business value. And we capture all that in a, in a model that looks a lot like a PowerPoint slide. Uh, and 
what that does is it it's a lot like doing a product demo of you're asking questions in a very structured way uh, just as you would as you went through a product demo uncovering pain points and understanding not only um, the value that you deliver but who does that value matter to coming back to personas a little bit you have a champion inside a company that might be a user of your product or might own the function that your product's going to help. But there's an economic buyer. There's other stakeholders that are curious about maybe risk reduction or um, different elements of, of your product or service. And exposing those and measuring them actually gives your champion a, a chance to be a hero by bringing a, a business case that speaks to that array of stakeholders excuse me, stakeholders, uh, and um, making the decision more about the business value of uh, that you're going to deliver and an ROI case. Because without that, it's on your prospect to sort of guesstimate it based on what they think of your demo, um, their confidence in your capability of, to implement, and that calculation is on their side. So you're really helping them out by structuring that business case. And I think the bit that stands out to me there, and, and, and to bring us back to the point on, on the feedback loop, I, I've certainly found with feedback loops like that, like you're getting from those customer interviews, um, it's a question that I like to ask quite a lot because the, I don't think there's one clearly defined way of building these feedback loops and often find that they're often more organic than anything. So in your experience, um, can you perhaps give one example of, I guess, what you'd consider to be one great feedback loop? Because I don't think there's a process to do it. Feel free to, to touch on that. But would, would love to know your perspective and perhaps one experience that you've had of it really working. Uh, where it's worked best, we've um, designated floor champions for different products. So we had AEs that were specialized in product A or product B. And that did two things. One thing, it gave everybody on the floor somebody to go to if they had a question about the product, an expert with that next level of detail. It also created a lightning rod for all the feedback on that product. So that AE um, actually um, had a career opportunity by going and meeting with the product team on a regular basis, monthly, and sharing that feedback in a structured way because without that sort of organic partnership and collecting feedback from across the team, it's the loudest AE or the biggest deal that influences product, which is usually not the right thing. Uh, so um, it helps our team have a voice with the product team uh, and making sure that we were speaking for the business with data and numbers uh, so that it wasn't just one deal or a loud uh, AE that was influencing the direction of the company, but it became a very data-driven conversation. And a lot of those AEs found a career path. A lot of them have gone into product marketing or to be um, founders themselves because of that experience. And it, it was probably one of the more positive things that we did. That's great. Uh, the, the things that, that, that kind of springs to mind is what was the incentive to get them initially signed up into that initiative? Was it this is what we're running and, you know, you had a handful of really enthusiastic people or take it away? 
we ran into sales problems and customer support problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, something didn't work or we didn't know which SKUs to sell. And we needed a structured conversation with the product team to go answer those questions. And we outnumbered the product team. So it couldn't be everybody slacking them all at once. We needed mm. to organize ourselves in order to, to make progress. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. We've touched a little on go-to-market strategy, and I, I always love looking at the uh, uh, through the lens at strategy on kind of two sides. One is very much on the, the high level, what it looks like and the documentation and everything that goes with it. And then the other side, which is so often the uh, the most challenging part, which is actually executing and, and and on that strategy. So, how what is your approach to the execution of that strategy once you've created it? Let me use um, headcount planning as part of that as one example, because I think um, one of the things that uh, go to market ops and rev ops teams are deeply involved in is fiscal planning. So, how do we um, what are the markets that we're going to invest in over the course of the year uh, with sales, with marketing, and with product? And how do those stack rank? Um, from there, where are we going to put our resources? And what are the, I'll say, the gates or the trigger points with which that we slow down or accelerate um, investment? And there's leading indicators, like how many inbound leads are we getting or what's our SDR um, call to meeting conversion rate. And then there's lagging indicators like sales um, AE attainment versus their quotas. And then ultimately revenue and churn rate. So it behooves us to approach this as a structured hypothesis. We believe that this um, industry or this segment of the market is going to be great for us. We're going to invest X percent of our um, incremental growth in um, doubling down on that industry. We want to see leading indicators of conversion rate. We want to see lagging indicators of AE attainment and tracking those on a monthly and quarterly basis and doing a deep dive on, boy, this is performing better than we expected. Or, huh, our conversion rates are really high, but those deals haven't dropped yet, and our attainment is, is lagging. Why is that, and what do we need to do differently? And so you've, you've got the uh, – actually, one thing I, I want to ask before we go down that route is we've got all of these leading and lagging ind- indicators. What would you say two of the most impactful leading indicators um, on, on, on revenue from your experience? Yeah. I lean really heavily on on meeting conversion rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then my other um, really strong indicator is AE productivity. So dollars per period per head. I'm really curious. Uh, uh, on AE productivity, could you expand why? Uh, at the end of the day, that is your, um, at least in a sales-driven company, that is your yeah. measure of efficiency uh, because um, in a growing company, you're adding AE heads. And due to ramp, you have to hire the heads today that are going to drive your growth next year. So being able to track your AE productivity per ramped head or, or um, fractional head is critically important. 
because if you pull back on AE hiring, it saves you money in the near term, but it actually cannibalizes next year's growth. For, for AE productivity, how do you track that? What, what, what metrics tie, tie into that? So um, there's a couple. Uh, and uh, let me, I'll wave my hands a little bit as I talk. Uh, it. It, is, it starts with AE heads in seat. Uh, then most teams have a ramp period for their AE heads. Um, I'm going to use a ballpark average of, let's say it takes <laughs> three months for an AE to come uh, to fully ramp. So your first month, I'm not expecting anything from you. You're in boot camp. You're, um, you're building out your pipeline, your territory. You probably won't close a deal. Uh, second month, you might get to 50% of your monthly quota. Um, third month, maybe a hundred percent. Maybe it's instead of zero, fifty, hundred, it could be zero, thirty-three, sixty-seven, a hundred. So depending on the segment you're selling into, you have different ramp times. So what I do is I take the heads and seat, multiply them by the ramp, uh, and then I have our target pro- times the quota, and I have our target productivity uh, for the team and seat. Uh, and I can measure how much sales did we close versus that target productivity. And then there's layers underneath that. Do I have a rock star rep that's carrying the team? Are my new hires tracking to their uh, projected ramp or not? And you can debug every element of that. Mm. Uh, but it really not- starts with uh, um, having that, what is our target um, prorated productivity for the team and how are we performing against it and and that was exactly what i was going to ask because um I, I find often when you've got it down on paper and you've got an idea of yes this is how um productive i need a rep to be often you do have your superstar reps right and and a attainment is notoriously challenging to to achieve consistently um do you is it, how how do you factor that into into your calculations can you factor that into your calculations yeah i think this is part of the strategy this gets into that strategy conversation of who do you want your sales team to be uh because um when i was coming up through salesforce we referred to oracle as the evil empire um i've matured past that in my life now but at oracle one thing that happened is you didn't get much ramp you got a really high quota, but you were only expected to hit like 70% of your number. And that was a good year. Um, you know, that's, that's sort of a drag mentally and emotionally to only get to 70%. At Salesforce, we took a different tact. We set lower quotas and our OTEs were, were lower if you hit your number. Uh, but which we designed quotas so that we averaged something like 90 odd percent attainment across the team. And we tried to get that balanced attainment because it's an area under the curve problem. If you have um, 10% of your team clobbering it and 90% of your team struggling, there's a big area under the curve of potential productivity. So we spent a lot of time trying to balance territories, a lot of time on enablement in order to get our average attainment 
up into the 80s and 90s. Yeah, we still had some outliers, both on the high end and the low end. But it's the middle that really drives the growth of the company and the efficiency of your go-to-market model. What was the secret to um, when you're when you've got your high performers? And now I'm using my hands too. Uh, yeah. You got your high performers, and you've got some of your low performers. What were some of the things that you did to really bring some of those lower performers up to to help you hit the targets to where you needed to be? I think there's some things that are under the RevOps team control, um, and some of them are, are broader. Um, let me start with territory design. Uh, we did a lot of work to figure out what are the most important signals in a balanced territory. So is it the mix of urban versus suburban uh, companies? Is it the mix of industries? Uh, is it the mix of customers versus new logos? Uh, and we spent a lot of time, we actually ran regression tests over the past couple of years of data, and we demonstrated to our sales leaders that um, this algorithm we came up with would give everybody a higher average attainment than uh, what they were getting with sort of bespoke territories. So that was a big watershed. Uh, one other thing that I lived through at Salesforce was when Lehman Brothers failed, uh, which is a little bit too reminiscent of the events of the past week or so. Yeah. Um, and what that prompted us to do is take a really hard look at what makes a successful rep. So we went uh, through historical data and we, we linked it through to uh, a lot of recruiting data. And we found that our best reps were top performers uh, at previous companies, which is kind of obvious. Uh, but we revamped the interview process. And this is something I ended up borrowing at Square to be a panel pitch where you're pitching um, to a panel of stakeholders and they role play. Uh, and at Square, we actually took this a level further. Of We gave people um, seven slides and we said, pick five, make one of your own and come in and pitch Square. And one of us was the economic decision maker. One of us was the um, champion, et cetera. And we challenged people to um, with questions we didn't expect them to have the answer to. And people's ability to do discovery, to be straightforward of, gosh, I don't know, but I'm going to help you find that answer, uh, really paid dividends in how they ended up performing. Um, and... At Salesforce, one of the things that we discovered is that our best reps did, um, were able to sell across a wider variety of, of payment types. So they sold quarterly, they sold annually, they sold multi-year, and they sold more products. So um, sales cloud, service cloud, etc., uh, which was a big indicator to us that they were selling what the customer wanted to buy. And we tried to replicate that ability in, through enablement because we also had top reps that showed up at President's Club every other year. And they were more like two-year-olds with hammers. They knew how to sell one product and every other year they would clobber it. Uh, but we tried to recruit that um, army of people that could do well in these territories 
that were a lot like a assembly line. They were very balanced, very interchangeable. And we tried to put the team on the field that could sell exactly what the customer wanted to buy. The, the question that came to mind as you were going through that was, I love the point of having a, a, a committee when interviewing. Were there consistent factors that you were looking for in that hiring process? You know, was there, you know, was it like a characteristic, a certain behavior, a, a, an outlook on things? Um, I, I'm, I'm intrigued to know if there's perhaps like very tangible things. It's like, yep, this person's got it. We, we know they're going to be a good fit. Two things really came to the fore of asking questions about the business before offering solutions. Mm. And then um, really strong next steps. What is it? What, what, when you say a really strong next step, what would you say that is? It's concrete and specific. So as an example, hey, Lee, thanks for your time today. I'm good. Um, let's look at calendars right now because you've asked me for X, Y, and Z. And I'd love to block time. Does next Tuesday work for you in order to answer these questions? And can you bring your manager to that meeting? Because a lot of these have to do with the economic dis- um, questions that they're asking you. Um, can we make that happen? And getting that agreement in the meeting was a big differentiator of um, people that were going to progress deals versus people that were going to, um, I'll say, be led through a sales cycle by their champion. Yeah, really interesting. And now we're talking about you before. The the thing that I'm curious to know is, do you, do you believe that that is still the case? Um, or has your thinking developed since then in terms of what differentiates a top performer from the rest of the pack? Um, actually, I, it's probably amplified that uh, because um, especially in this time, uh, as economic headlines are blowing, it really behooves every salesperson to do two things. Get to the meat of the pain that a company is is experiencing and be very concise about how you're going to address that pain point. Uh, And then secondly, be stingy with your time. Uh, You want to move deals forward. You want to identify who's going, who is real about having a purchasing discussion versus somebody that doesn't have purchasing power uh, because it's very easy to um, to dance with somebody for a very long time in this environment and not not be able to close a deal with them because the timing just isn't right. And that's not a ding on your salesmanship. That's not a ding on them as a buyer. It's just the timing isn't right. And there are people out there for whom the timing is right. Absolutely. And, and so often that's a big reason why deals slip right you know deals that are being held onto and hope more than more than expectation um curious to get your perspective on deal slippage in particular uh, how, how have you dealt with that in the past and perhaps could you shine a light on any solutions that yeah. you found that have uh, reduced the amount of deal slippage it's this is where i think um Ebsta really uh helps and forecasting tools like it because you're surfacing a lot of the elements that um that sales managers and rev ops leaders focus in on 
of when was the last time that you actually spoke with somebody? Uh, are they responding to your emails? Are, um, are you connected to power inside of a deal? Uh, because at the, um, we can talk a lot about different sales methodologies, but all of them boil down to those same elements of, are you getting to the pain point? Are you quantifying the business case? Are you getting to the, the decision makers? And have you started the process that you need to go through with legal, with procurement, um, et cetera, in order to be in a good position to close this deal? And those are fairly objective criteria. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and often then the challenge is, uh, and certainly for, from analysis that we've run, there's uh, clearly an impact that things like sales methodologies do have on, on reps that are using them, but still the amount that are actually completing this feels is still relatively low. So in perhaps businesses that you've worked in or working with, have you found a way to you know, really get reps on board with uh, perhaps using methodologies like that or leaning into some of those uh, indicators that suggest, you, you know, for example, that there's no activity in the past seven days or there's no meeting booked in the future. How do you get them on board? Yeah, um, two things. Uh, and one's, uh, one I enjoy a lot more than the other. The one <laughs> I enjoy is having a SWAT team of early adopters. Uh, this, um, it's typically at least one of your top reps, but I love getting and coaching at a middle performer or even a low performer into this group of give me a month, give me a couple of weeks to try this out and we'll see if you can make an impact on your pipeline. Because the stories, the case studies from peers are super impactful. And that's sort of the, oh, um, Joey just clobbered his number. How did he do that? Uh, and Or, boy, so-and-so seems to be really on top of their deals, and they're having a different level of conversation. They're assigning tasks to the management team during forecast calls where I'm getting drilled. How do I flip that around? Um, those, everybody on the sales floor is incredibly talented and they pick up on patterns like that right away. Um, so that's, that's my favorite way. Um, the other way is the stick method of just grinding in on an inspection, uh, and having the data to do it so that you can show people, Hey, it's been seven days since you last interacted with them. Have they responded to your last email? When's our next meeting with them? What is the agenda for that next meeting? All those very specific questions are very knowable. That's what CRMs were designed for. Uh, but that conversation is brutal. And people that are able to capture those specific next steps in the CRM elevate that conversation of all the data is already there. It's in my forecast. It's in my next steps. The data of my interactions and my activity on this account are visible. Um, so let's have a conversation about what our close plan is. Do you know the head of procurement? Do you know the CFO? How do we get time with them? 
and it becomes more about social selling and closing. And how are we going to demonstrate value X or Y than it does about getting that next meeting? And that's really when, when teams start performing at a high level. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, the stigma method never, uh, never a nice one. Um, sometimes sadly necessary. Uh, Rusty, I want to ask you one final question. And uh, this one's not really uh, sales related. So if you could recommend one book to other revenue leaders, which would you pick? And that could be fiction or nonfiction or whatever way you'd like to take it. One that comes to mind right away is the goal. It's an old one. It's about somebody that takes on a, a factory and goes through that factory, boosting productivity in one area, then the other. And I think that's a lot about what um, what our roles in go-to-market ops are, is we have a factory to run. Uh, I think that's sort of one that's probably on everybody's bookshelf. The other one I'd recommend, um, and this comes back to personas, is Why We Buy by Paco Underhill. And he was one of the foundational people in retailing that did deep thinking and quantitative analysis of where do you put things in a grocery store in order to sell more? And why does the top shelf work better than the bottom shelf? Um, so uh, it's a fascinating read. And as you apply it to B2B enterprise sales, um, all the same dynamics come to play. So it really gets you inside the head of your buyers. Love it. I will make sure that we include a couple of links to those both down below. Rusty, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting. Um, for anyone that, you know, if they have any questions or want to connect, where can they find you? You can find me at rusty at spokesgroup.co. Perfect. We'll include those down in the show notes as well. Excellent. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much again, Rusty, for, for joining me and to everyone that's listened to this week's episode. We'll see you next week. Cheers, Lee. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.